So this afternoon we're studying Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Um, I'll pray, seek the Lord's blessing, and then we'll get going, get started. Our Father in heaven, as we now study your word, we ask, Father, that you would prepare our hearts to receive the scriptures for that which they truly are, the very words of God. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptised, and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So it's interesting, as we read earlier in John chapter 1, this was the reason John came baptising. He came baptising with a baptism of repentance, calling the people of Israel and Judah to a true and genuine faith, calling them to truly worship God and not just to hold to some kind of false and outward supposed compliance to the law. Their hearts were not in it. But ultimately, John tells us in the Gospel of John, and yes, I know the author of the Gospel of John is the Apostle John, but John the Baptist speaking in the Gospel of John tells us that he came for this reason, that the Son of God might be revealed, that Jesus might be revealed. And so this is, if you want to think of it that way, the very high point of John the Baptist's ministry. We're picking it up, as I said, in verse 21, where we read, Now when all the people were baptised, and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, Jesus was baptised with all the people. The emphasis of this sentence here is not saying that Jesus was baptised after the people. It's not saying necessarily that he waited till last. It's saying that he was baptised with the people. And... There ought to be a question that sort of springs immediately to mind, and that is, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, has committed no sin, obviously worships God, obviously has a a perfect relationship with God the Father. Why would he participate in a baptism of repentance? Why would he participate? Why would he submit to the baptism of John? Well, Jesus came, truly human, to identify with those who are God's people. And God had commanded that his people repent of their sins, and the sign of that repentance was the baptism of John the Baptist. And so in identifying with the people of God, Jesus is to obey the commandment that had been given to the people of God. John legitimises Jesus proclaiming him to be the son of God. Even at the same time, Jesus is legitimising the ministry of John, proclaiming John to be the last of the prophets, one to whom you should listen. Jesus is identifying then with the people whom he came to save. Things that happen to Jesus are counted as having happened to us. We are in Christ. His righteousness is counted as being our righteousness. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, It's fitting that I be baptised by you. For what purpose? To fulfil all righteousness. To do that which is commanded. To do that which is correct. In a manner of speaking, this is actually our baptism. In a manner of speaking, we were truly baptised, we were truly put under the water in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus commanded. But here, Jesus is baptised. And I'm trying to sort of get at this idea that that which happened to Christ is counted as that which has happened to us. And in a way, our baptism is a symbol of the baptism that we have through the union of faith with Christ. In a way, this is the baptism that counts the most. And yet it's important that we be baptised. This is the baptism of God's people. Jesus was baptised and Luke tells us was praying. He was baptised and was praying. And once again, I mean, a similar question arises and, and I've heard it asked. Scott, you're a Calvinist. You believe all things happen according to the will of God. Nothing happens that, not is, according, that is not according to the will of God, that all of these things were foretold, that Jesus' ministry was, if you want to use the word, predestined, as are our lives predestined. Why do we pray? It's a fair question. My answer is we are truly participating in the life that we have been given in the time that we live. And Jesus, in his true humanity was praying. He was truly a man of prayer. And though his life was predestined, foreordained, prophesied, so many so many details in the Old Testament are fulfilled in so many prophetic details in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Yet even so, Jesus in his true humanity was required to be a man of prayer. And so are we. You know, you, you think of something like Moses intercedes for the people of Israel and the text in Exodus reads that God accepted the intercession of Moses and did not destroy the people of Israel. Did God change his mind? You know, I mean, that, that might seem to be the way it appears. Did God change his mind? Looking at it from a, perfectly, from a totally human perspective, you could say God changed his mind. But why was Moses praying? And who inspired Moses to pray? And who gave Moses the power and the faith to pray? And could Moses have prayed apart from that one who gave him the power and the faith to pray? And the answer is absolutely not. Moses, like any other man, was born in sin. Moses prayed because God the Holy Spirit enabled and strengthened him in prayer and prompted him to pray. And he truly prayed. We're finite creatures. We live in time. From that point of view, would it be true to say if Moses had not prayed, God would have judged the Israelites and destroyed the whole nation? Carefully, yes, from a purely human point of view. But remember, Moses prayed at that time in that way because God made him pray. We participate in the life God has given us. This, this is not a fake life, a pretend life. You know, this is, we are not puppets. We are not 
We are not computer models doing whatsoever the computer programmer says we should do. We're true people. We exercise will. We exercise our will according to our nature. We, we exercise the authority and the power that God has given us. And just because we do these things, it doesn't mean that we're doing it apart from God. My friends, if we do anything right, anything, if we do anything that's righteous, if we do anything that's godly, if in any way our life reflects the life of Jesus, well, who's going to hold up their hand and say, and that's because I'm such a good person and I tried really hard and I made myself just like Jesus, even for a minute? You know, none of you are going to say that. I'm not going to say that. You're not going to say that because it's madness. Why? Well, like the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, we know that no good thing dwells within us, that is, within our flesh. If we manage to do anything that is Christ-like, godly and righteous in the sight of God, it's because God himself prompted and empowered us to do it. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12, starting there. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice what he's saying. Exert energy. Exert your efforts. Make an effort. Strive. Try. Work out from that which is within. Work it out with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why are we being commanded to strive, to try, to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling? Why? Because Paul knows that God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So all good things come from God. Any good thing that a Christian does comes from God. No one ever puts God into debt. No one ever does something that make God, makes God owe them something. The truth is, if we do any good work, any godly work, if we're growing in sanctification or grace or, or biblical knowledge or any good thing, it's all because God is working in us. And we wouldn't do it apart from God. So the more of godliness we have, the more we owe God. It's not God that owes us. We're the ones that owe God. Turning back into Luke chapter 3. Jesus was baptised and was praying. This was no light decision on the part of Jesus. You know, remember, I speak to you of Jesus in his humanity. Well, Jesus in his humanity knew the scriptures. You know, Jesus in his humanity would already know what a Roman crucifixion looked like. He would have heard the screams of the tortured. He would have heard the death rattle. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus knows Psalm 22. You know, at some point in his human life, and, and you know, I guess if there was, you know, you have some little questions you'd like to know, I'd, 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 I'd love to know that moment. When was the moment that Jesus in his humanity, with his understanding of the scriptures, realised that all this suffering was coming to him. Was he a teenager? Was he, was he a bit older than that? We don't know. We're not told. It's no good wasting too much time on those sort of questions. But there was a moment. And now 
Having been baptised by John, he's praying. He knows what's coming. He knows that this is the beginning of his public ministry. How does he know it? Well, he knows what John's going to say. He's praying and the heavens were opened. Now, that tells you something. What does it tell you? If at this special moment in redemptive history the heavens were opened, what is the condition of the heavens normally? Remember, how do we get to God? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we grow in the knowledge of God? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we see God? We look to Jesus and Jesus reveals the Father unto us. John chapter 1 and verse 18. No one knows the Father. The only begotten Son or the only God who is in the Father's side, he makes him known. The heavens were opened. Jesus was baptised and the heavens were opened. God is at work. Something great and marvellous is happening. The heavens were opened. And, verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So much to unpack here. First of all, as I said earlier, we read that passage in John chapter 1. John the Baptist puts the emphasis on the Holy Spirit appearing as a dove. The actual emphasis in what Luke is saying here is in what the Holy Spirit was doing. The Holy Spirit was descending or hovering like a dove. John tells us the Holy Spirit appeared as a dove. Luke tells us the Holy Spirit descended or hovered and came upon Jesus like a dove. Luke's language is kind of reminding us of something. It's reminding us of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Luke is saying, look back to the creation. Look back to the beginning of human history. Look back to the beginning of God's dealings with mankind and now understand something. It's starting again. This is a whole new beginning. You know, the scripture tells us that that which we long for, which is the new creation, in a way it's already here with us and among us and it's in our heart and we already are citizens of the new creation, though as of yet we're living in the old creation. But this is a creation moment. This is just, a, just as great a self-revelation of God as the creation of the universe as we know it. And if you think about the universe, okay, why is it almost in a way infinite? I mean, I know the scientists will tell you they can take measurements and they can estimate its size and all that kind of stuff, but the numbers just get so big that, I mean, I don't know anyone who could truly understand what the numbers mean. But that's the kind of stage that God needs or uses to reveal his glory. Not needs, uses. Shouldn't have used that word needs. That's the kind of stage God uses to reveal his glory. It's a big enough stage for God to reveal his glory. Well, Luke is comparing the revelation of the Son of God, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, to that creation of the heavens, to that creation of the whole universe. You know, if, if you're awestruck, you know, if you, if you look through a telescope and you're awestruck, if you love um, 
documentaries that tell you all about stars and galaxies and all of that kind of stuff, and I enjoy them. And, and if you watch those things and you think to yourself, what a great and wonderful God we serve, truly the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's true. But what Luke's wanting us to think is even more so, the Lord Jesus reveals the glory of God. The Lord Jesus reveals the saving power of God. When we know God through Jesus, we know God in such a wonderfully intimate way, in such a mind-blowingly special way. The next thing I want us to look at as we think about this verse is the three persons of the Trinity. They're all spoken of. We have the Holy Spirit descending on him in bodily form like a dove, hovering, as it were, and descending onto Jesus. And then we have a voice from heaven quoting two passages of Scripture. You are my beloved son. Well, if Jesus is his son, the one who is speaking is the father. You are my beloved son. So we have the spirit hovering upon the son of God. We have the father speaking and saying, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. This is a declaration once again of God himself. The son is one in essence with the father. One in essence. I'm not saying his physical body is one in essence. That's his, that's his human body. But Jesus is eternally the son of God. We always think in terms of time, and in some ways it's not a good way to think because time is something that God has created. Does God occupy time? Yes. But time has a definite beginning. It, it began when God began it. If we could get outside of time and get to God somehow or other, we'd find Father, Son and Holy Spirit because that is who God is. That is what God is. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Jesus is a specific and a particular revelation of the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is God the Son. We know from other places in Scripture that in Psalm 110, when King David says the Lord or Yahweh says to my Lord, Adonai, well, we know that David is considering that he worships God and he worships more than one person as God. My God said to my God. And that, in a way, is as close as we get to the revelation of the Son of God in the Old Testament. You know, you, you've got Psalm 2, which, which we just read. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And it closes off with kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So it's known that there's a son of God. But he's not known in the way that he's known when John the Baptist baptises him. And it's declared to all the world, this is the Saviour. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of David. This is where all the promises of God are concentrated in. This is the one who is a son of Abraham. He's the seed of Abraham, the one who is bringing salvation to all the peoples of the world. You are my beloved son. That's a Psalm 2 quotation. You are my beloved son. 
The second half, with you I am well pleased, is also a scriptural quotation. Turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Loose alternate translation by the Septuagint of my chosen in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. In With you I am well pleased. And notice that Isaiah 42.1 speaks of the fact that the Holy Spirit is upon this one, this servant whom, in whom God delights. And then you sort of let off on another trail of consideration because ultimately what happens concerning the servant? Turn to Isaiah 52. And starting at verse 13, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying you necessarily should know this off by heart, but you should know where to find this, and this should be something that's on your minds at times, because this is, in many ways, the height of the Old Testament's revelation of the means by which God works our salvation. Behold, my servant. So let's stop and think backwards. I've taken you to Psalm, I mean to Isaiah 42, verse 1. The servant in whom God delights. Step back one, we've come to there from Luke chapter 3, verse 22. My beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So this is the same person. This is whom the scripture is speaking of. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Something's revealed here. We've got to stop again and think about this and how scripture binds us together or how scripture works together. He shall be high and lifted up. Does anyone sort of remember where else in the book of Isaiah that phrase is used and who it's used of? Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah himself was taken into the throne room of heaven and there he beheld Yahweh high and lifted up. Exactly the same phrase. And that's why John chapter 12 tells us that it was Jesus whom Isaiah saw. He saw the glory of Jesus. He saw Yahweh high and lifted up. He was in the very throne room of God, hearing God being worshipped and glorified by angels, the pre-incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But then we read this. As many are astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That phrase sprinkle, that's another Old Testament word. It refers to the blood of the covenant being sprinkled on the people. Sprinkled. So shall he sprinkle. So shall his blood draw many, many nations into the covenant. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Reading on into Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a, a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus, average-looking Jewish man of around 30 years of age. There was nothing incredible in his looks. 
It's about the revelation of God in the baptism of John, the, the, the descent of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, the voice of the Father confirming his sonship. These are the things that we cling to, the things that come to us out of Scripture. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. So it's called the fourth servant song. It speaks of the sufferings of the Lord's servant. It speaks of him suffering because our sins were laid upon him. It speaks of him being rejected, as it were, by the people of God rejected by the Jews himself. It speaks of the test of faith. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That servant was revealed to us in Isaiah chapter 42 at verse 1. The servant in whom God's soul delights. And in Luke chapter 3 verse 22, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We're dealing here with humanity and divinity. Humanity and divinity. Our Lord, our Lord and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, is truly man and truly God. That which would indicate he is truly man is that he chose to be baptised amongst the people of God in response to the commandment of God. God spoke through John the Baptist. He called upon his people to undergo a baptism of repentance and a renewal of their commitment to him, a renewal of their faith and practice. As a man, he answered that call. As a man, he prayed. He was baptised. He did go under the water and he came up and was praying. He is truly human. My friends, it's so important that we understand that and that we never forget it. Because what was the promise back in the book of Genesis concerning our salvation? There would be a seed of the woman, a man. What what can a woman bring into the world but a human? In this case, a boy child, because it says he will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will strike his heel. He is truly human. 
and he is truly divine. God says, you are my beloved son. He's always been the son of God, but now he has taken upon himself flesh. Now he has committed himself, as it were, into this role of being the suffering servant. The one who would bear the sins of his people, the one who would shed the blood that cleanses the people of God and purchases the people of God for eternal life in the presence of God. And according to the ancient formulations, that which was human is human and that which was divine is divine. I just want to read to you one of the creeds of the ancient church. It's called the Creed of Chalcedon. And I want you to hear, as I read this, and I'll try and read it nice and slowly, I want you to hear what these teachers, what these leaders of the church in this day, somewhere around about the 400s, were trying to do. They're trying to set up boundaries They're trying to bring as much understanding as they could to the concept of Jesus being both truly human and truly divine. Now, why is this important? Why why are these distinctions important? If Jesus is hybrid, he's not truly man. Remember, we're looking for a seed of the woman, a second Adam, as it were, who would set right that which Adam had set wrong, a man. God requires it to be a man. He, he, you know, he, in, in, in Isaiah, he speaks of he, he searched for a man and could find none. And he himself put upon himself the helmet of salvation and came to save his people. A man, truly a man. And yet, even as he is truly a man, he is truly divine. What's important about that? Well, who can redeem us? Who can redeem us? What, what, oh, as I say this, let, God has set his love upon us. Okay, I'm not denying that God has set his love upon us and he sent his son for us, which makes us precious in his sight. But what is our value as sinners? And what's the value of our sinful blood? And what can we change about anyone with our own power or strength? You know, my blood can't wash away my own sins, let alone anyone else's. And it's the same for all of us here. So this Jesus of Nazareth, this son of God, he is truly human. He is the second Adam who will set things right, who will reign at the right hand of God the Father. And he is truly divine. His blood is cleansing blood. His blood is purchasing blood. His obedience has value in the sight of God. So let me read this creed. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Perfect in Godhead, truly the Son of God, eternally the Son of God, without beginning, without ending, without limit to his power, truly the Son of God, also perfect in manhood, truly, completely human, 
You know, you find little lines in the scripture. Jesus was tired. Jesus was thirsty. Sometimes Jesus asks a question. Which of you touched me? Looking at a crowd of thousands. Truly human. Truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body. What does that mean? The human mind of Jesus was a truly human mind of a rational soul and body, able to think, able to, able to have his own thoughts, able to use reason, able to use logic with a truly human body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead. Okay, so this one who is perfect in Godhead is coessential with the Father shares the same essence as the Father in the Godhead. One in essence, one in stuff. Whatever God is, in his divinity, Jesus is God. Coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. Now, Jesus in the Gospel of John tells us that God is spirit. Now, spirit is not substance. You get what I'm saying here? Spirit is not substance. Wood's substance. Body and skin is substance. Water is substance. Spirit is not substance. Consubstantial. When you've got con, it means working together or, or, or like, like, together with. Sharing the same substance as us, according to the manhood. In all things, now this is, recur this is considering his humanity, in all things like unto us, without sin. In all things like unto us, without sin. And you say, well, that's a mighty big difference, and how does that make him like unto us? Well, in terms of humanity, he was like us. It's not sinful to be tired. It's not sinful to be thirsty. It's not, it's not sinful to, to feel the burden of the warfare with sin. In all things like unto us, Without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. Whenever you're reading these creeds and you come across that word begotten, or if you're reading in the King James and you come across that word begotten, always remember this. We're speaking now of divine things, not human things. Begotten means begotten, not made. It means eternally begotten. Begotten before all ages, outside of time of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, you say, where do they get that line from? They get it from the Gospel of Luke, remember? Mary goes to meet Elizabeth and Elizabeth says, the Mother of my Lord has come to visit me. The Mother of God according to the manhood. One and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. To be acknowledged in two natures, divine and human, without confusion. That which is human is human, that which is divine is divine. Without change, he has become incarnate, he remains incarnate. And the humanity has not become divinity, and the divinity has not become humanity. Without division, though we're speaking of two natures, we're speaking of one person. Without separation not to be divided. 
The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. Why do they use that phrase, subsistence? Because it's one of the favoured words for describing a person in the Godhead. One God, three subsistences, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. One subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. However we think of Jesus, we must never mistake that he was both truly human and truly God and truly one person, truly one subsistence. Our Saviour, our God. And so in these two verses, so much is revealed. We have the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then we have the divine and human nature of the Son himself having become incarnate. God does great things in the world. It's no wonder that Luke makes that reference to the Holy Spirit descending or hovering as a dove, turning us back. Once again, I point out, turning us back to the book of Genesis and to the idea of creation because this is the beginning of the new creation. The new creation was walking in the world and the new creation is the Lord Jesus himself. He's the beginning of God's new creation. And we long to be with him and we long to live in that new creation. And the truth is, if anybody is in Christ, turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. We'll start at verse 14. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians concerning his ministry. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So there's that, whatever has happened to Jesus, it in Christ has happened to us. One has died for all. Jesus died. Who are the all? Those who have died in Christ. Therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's actually shorter than that in Greek. It's literal. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal for us, we implore you on on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles in, in tongues of flaming fire, basically it's the same thing happening to the church as happened to Jesus at his baptism. Yeah, I know. The Holy Spirit in the book of Acts descends 
as tongues of fire, not in the form of dove. The whole, you know, and and we're not given this detailed description. You know, Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit, that he would go to the Father, and from the Father they would send forth the Spirit, and through the work of the Spirit they would be with us and in us always. Jesus was baptized in the water. Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that baptism has fallen upon the church the people of God, and remains upon the church, the people of God. I don't believe that the scripture anywhere teaches that the baptism of the Spirit is a second conversion experience that Christians should expect. We were baptised in Christ. Our baptism by water is, as I've said, a a, a symbolic baptism of the fact that we were baptised in Christ, so to speak. And the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ when Christ was baptised. And if we are Christ's people and we are in his church, the true and living church, I'm not talking about this particular church or any other particular church. I'm talking about any believer who is truly in and of the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit has descended upon the church. We have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the, the uh, John the Baptist says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, which was read earlier, descended upon him and remained and remained. It always amazes me that people think that somehow or other they have the power to switch on or off the Holy Spirit. It, it's just... It's just it's just the silliest thought that you could possibly imagine, yet people maintain that thought and what's more, they uphold it as a doctrine. That somehow or other, you know, if, if you wake up tonight or in the morning and say, you know what, I don't think I'll be a Christian, somehow or other the Holy Spirit is obeying your, your demands. You know, I don't want to be called to God. I don't want to be this. I mean, one, I know that if we are truly in Christ, we could never say such a thing. But do we control the Spirit of God? Do we tell him what to do? In all honesty, he's God. And that's what amazes me. He is God. Who can stop God from accomplishing God's purposes? Who? You know, if you are truly born again, Jesus said you're born of water and the Spirit. You're born by the power of God's Holy Spirit. What? You turn the Holy Spirit off because you don't want him there anymore? You know, it's just, it's the silliest nonsense. It really is. My friends, if we are in Christ, we are in Christ for all of eternity. And when we were spiritually now, and I'm not talking about water because I'm not trying to attach this doctrine to water baptism, as important a covenant sign as it is. When we were spiritually baptised into Christ through faith, the Holy Spirit, because we are in Christ, descended upon us just as he descended upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and we thank you for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We thank you, our Father, that you sent your Son into the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we thank you, our Father, and we thank you, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have sent to us the gift of the Holy Spirit, 
that we may be alive in your sight, that we may work the works of faith, that we may believe in you, that we may have the scriptures open to us, that we may have a life of prayer, that we may have fellowship among the saints, that we may have love one for another as saints. Father, we thank you and we praise you for you have given us these gifts which are so much more than we could ever deserve and so much of, of so much more value than we could ever imagine. Father, help us to live in the light of this, this glorious gift, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.